Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spear. Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is uh, May 9th, 2013. It's a Thursday, and God, I feel like it's a Friday. This has been a hell of a busy week, guys. All right, so let's get into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I wanted to do a show where people could take a good hard look at where they are, how they got there, and where they're going. And I wanted to take the, the approach of let's look at what risks there are to us. Let's assess the risks. And then let's examine how prepared we really are if those risks come to be. And to do this, I need to kind of go rewind, you know. Remember the old rewind sound, right? I need to do that. That's upset. Oh, by the way, we have a new dog named Charlie. Um, we have a, uh, a little puppy in the home that we'll talk about more next week, but, uh, It doesn't replace the, the loss of Blackie, but it, it sure feels good to have him here. Anyway, so when we look at this, we have to rewind and do that rewind back to uh, about 2008 when I started the show. And one of the key tenets that I talked about was disaster probability, impact scale, and what I call an inverse relationship between the two. And what I mean by that is when people get into preparedness, when they decide something wakes them up, like, gee, I'm like naked in the wind here. I don't know what to do. Um, I, I, I feel exposed. They freak out. It's usually something happens. So either they're in close proximity to a major disaster or part of one, uh, like the explosion in West Texas, which West is a town, not a region. Uh, where the fertilizer plant exploded in a leveled part of a town, or they see uh, the, the tornado outbreak of 2011 is a good example, where entire towns were either sawed in half or small towns in northwestern Arkansas were literally eliminated. They're gone. They're not coming back. They're not even rebuilding them. They're just like, it's gone. We're just going to go somewhere else. That's how, how bad that outbreak was. Or most times what really freaks people out is they – just simply become aware of how bad the economy is or how much risk there is to eventual pandemics. A lot of times it's a Hollywood movie or a book. And all of that stuff generally focuses on what NASA would call a low-probability, high-impact event, which they're usually talking about meteors and comets hitting the Earth, including levels of events like that that could be called an extinction-level event or an ELE, E-L-E. Um, And that's then what becomes the focus and the drive of preparedness for the individual. Oh, God, the world's going to end. The zombies are going to march. Dogs and cats are going to get married. Whatever it is, that's, that's the, the driving force. And then they usually fall into the trap of stupidity. They overreact. They move too fast. They do too much and too little of a time. They leave too many holes in their preparedness. And they think they're prepared for the apocalypse, and they're not even prepared to lose a job. And if you are not prepared to lose a job, don't fool yourself. You're not prepared for the apocalypse either. Um, that, that's just the reality. And the reality then is also that nobody's prepared for the apocalypse. It's impossible. 
Um, we can be prepared that if, if we have that level of a global event, that we're in the best shape we can to try to survive it, but we're not prepared for it. Prepared for it means we can just, oh, got it handled. And the type of events that you're thinking about in that level, you're never actually at that point. Nobody is. Because we are, no man is an island. The good news is, those events are the least likely that you will ever see in your lifetime. The bad news is all the ones that we tend to ignore and not worry about and think, well, you just fine for, are the ones that are most possible. That's the inverse relationship. The greater the number of people affected by an individual disaster, the less likely you as an individual are to ever experience it, with a few caveats. Okay, if you live in a hurricane-prone zone, okay, there's a regional component to that. So you might be fairly likely to be affected by a hurricane if you live in South Florida. You might even be more likely to have a hurricane affect your life before you have to deal with a job loss. It still doesn't mean that that component, that individual component, isn't a high-risk scenario. And it's, it's a simple thing. When I ask somebody, have you ever known anybody that's been blown up by a nuclear bomb? Usually they say no. Have you ever known a person, actually known them in real life, who's ever had their body eaten away by Ebola? No. Okay. Have you ever known anybody who's been chomped on the head by a zombie? No. Okay. Have you ever known anybody that's lived through an EMP? No. Okay. Have you ever known anybody that died in a pandemic? Most people are going to say no. Okay. Great. Now, have you ever known anybody that's lost a job? Yes. Have you yourself ever lost a job? Most people at some point in their life will say yes. Some people are that good or that lucky and they'll say no. Have you ever known anybody that's had a serious financial loss? Have you ever had a serious financial loss? Have you ever known anybody who uh, either themselves or their spouse became critically or terminally ill or has lost a child? Sadly, most people will say yes to all of that. Okay, have you ever known anybody whose house has had the roof torn off by a storm or severe damage to their house by, for, by a storm or severe damage to their home by fire? Most people know somebody, at least, that had one of those things or several of those things occur to them. Okay. Now, given you don't know anybody that's ever been through the zombie apocalypse, given you don't know anybody who's ever had their lights put out by an electromagnetic pulse, being you don't know anybody that's ever been uh, subjected to Ebola, being you don't know anybody that's ever been blown up by a nuclear bomb, maybe, maybe, I'm just saying maybe, it makes more sense to prepare for all that other stuff first, on the way to trying to be prepared for the more catastrophic disasters. Because they're most likely to happen to you between now and the future, whatever the future may bring. And it's something that we really need to understand. And we need to understand that our goal is, is modern survivalists. And I do believe our biggest threat is economic. I believe that this country is in, in store for an economic boom. Yeah, I said boom. If you've not been listening to me, yeah, I think we're about to have one of the best periods ever in the history of the country from an economic standpoint. Sadly, it will be driven by both fake and real factors, fake economic factors, real energy factors. But that can only go on so long, and sooner or later we are going to get to a point where inflation, the devaluation of money, the ridiculous level of debt, and the interest there on it, do their full-scale, whole cancer-style damage, eat the patient from the inside, and we wake up to terminal financial illness as a nation. But that's not happening tomorrow. That's not happening next year. That's not even happening in the next five years. 
There could be recessions and things in the middle. But that day is probably, at this point, 10 years into the future or more. And I don't claim to be Nostradamus. I don't know the exact timeline. I just can do math and say, with mathematical certainty, this system at some point must fail. It could happen in five years. I could be wrong. It could happen in two. I could be wrong. I'm giving you my estimate here. But I also can tell you this. Even if it's three years from now that we deal with that reality, and again, I don't think it is, the probability that some some of these mundane, boring things could happen to you between now and then, pretty high. And if we're preparing for that eventual day, what we want to be doing is set up our lives with such resiliency and redundancy in them that even if that happens, we do okay. And with the economic problem, I do have good news for you. Yes, yes, I said good news. No, the world will not end. No, the United States will not sink into an antlion hole. If you don't know what an antlion is, Google it. No, it will not all blow up and go away. And no, an economic collapse will not result in a Hollywood-style movie with everybody killing each other from sea to shining sea. It will result in a massive shift, an almost immediate uh, f- filling of a vacuum. The bad news is we will lose liberty when this happens, even more than we have in the past. We'll have to struggle to maybe use the opportunity to reclaim some of it. I don't know how that will work out. But on the other side of this will be an economic shift. And if you're really prepared by having your life squared away, you'll be able to get through that shift. You may not be happy about it. I probably won't either. But you'll be able to get through it a hell of a lot better than most people. If, along the journey of preparedness, you're not constantly knocked off the path by little mundane, boring, and sometimes big, scary disasters that aren't the big disaster that you're prepared for. If those little things keep causing you to stumble, fall, and fail versus improving your preparedness along the way, and increasing your solidarity toward that eventual heavy preparedness, then when that day comes, you won't, you'll probably be less prepared because your life will have been so kicked around like a soccer ball during that, that pathway. Because in this boom period, a lot of misery is going to happen as well from natural disasters to man-made and all types of things in between. And that doesn't mean it's going to all happen to you, but it's going to happen to somebody. I mean, turn your TV on. Uh, one of the great blessings this year is that we haven't had a lot of tornadic storms this year. If you had a tornado near you and it did damage to you or your home or something, I'm not putting you down. I, I don't want you to be like, hey, you know, stuff did happen. I'm just saying, compared to the last few years, they're actually, the weather people are calling it a tornado drought. I mean, that, but I mean, in previous years, I mean, did you see what happened to Joplin? Did you see what happened to Birmingham? You know, I saw Birmingham uh, first, first, you know, what do you call it? First person, whatever. I was there firsthand. That's what I was trying to think of. I drove right through a one mile cut in the city and it reminded me of an old movie from the eighties. It was on TV that I was in grade school when it came out. And like every kid that watched it was scared shitless for like a week after we watched it. It was called the day after about nuclear war. You remember that guys? Those of you that are old enough to remember it, that the scenery in that movie, not during the bombs going on, but that the bombs were gone and done. And they showed just the devastated, like the housing and rubbles and all. That's what Birmingham looked like. I'm pretty sure Joplin looked the same. And I saw some little towns, like I said, in northwest Arkansas that we went up to look at. There was no town. There was What they were doing, the, re, the, the, the relief effort, was they sent trucks in and hauled everything away and let the trees grow back and the people moved. Right, that's just tornadic storms. You know, Hurricane Sandy. Let's go back a little bit. Hurricane Ivan. Hurricane Katrina. 
You know, we, we, and it's just so we understand this isn't like, well, that's just because of global warming or something. And it, maybe that cycle's changing. This is old stuff, man. This has been around for, for a long time. Let me give you some big ones. Some big ones that did major damage. Ike, 2008. Ah, that's recent. How about Audrey in 1957? Camille in 1969? Um, Gilbert in 1988? Hugo in 1989? Andrew in 1982? Hurricane Mitch in 1998? How about Tropical Storm Allison in 2001? It was just a tropical storm. It was a, a major, major disaster. Um, Dennis in 2005. Dennis just was ignored uh, because of the damage that Katrina and Rita both did in that same year. Uh, there is so much that's happened just from a, a hurricane standpoint. Put hurricanes and tornadoes together, then throw earthquakes on top of that. And then 2008, how many people lost their job in 2008 and 2009? How much money was lost in the stock market in 401k plans in 2008 and 2009? All of these things have happened, so we know that they're going to happen again. And that means that this inverse relationship of impact scale versus probability really matters to our planning. Because if we only focus on these big disasters, we're going to get really hurt by the little ones. Because I don't know if you've paid attention, but if you lose your job, yeah, you can eat the mountain house, but if you've invested $20,000 in pallets of mountain house food, uh, you might actually have better use of that $20,000 during a job loss than eating um, chicken cubes every day for six months while you look for a job. All while depleting the stockpile that you worked so hard to, to put up and paying quite a bit more for that food than you would have if you had just bought like fresh chicken from the store, which you probably would enjoy more. I'm not saying there's not a place for the mountain house. I got plenty of it. I got more of it than you might imagine, right? But I'm just saying that there's a, there's a, a level that we kind of ramp into this over time. We start with the basics first and we need to look at our needs. When we, when we do this, we need to say to ourselves, well, no matter what happens, what's, what does the commonality of disaster? That's another, you know, rewind back to 2008. That's that, that long that I've been teaching this, that that's what goes along with probability and impact scale, which is commonality. In other words, no matter what happens in the end, because we're human beings and we have certain physical, emotional and spiritual and communal needs that disasters always tend to cause the same effect, all that changes is how big is the impact and is anybody coming to help and how long does it take for them to get there? Those are the only things that change. If you lose a job, you're concerned with putting food on the table. But there's a lot of things you can do to make sure food goes still on the table. You're, not everybody you know lost a job, so you can be helped by your, your neighbors and your community. Odds are if you're a member of a church, as soon as they know, they're trying to help you. Um, you can get unemployment. Uh, you can go out and find another job. Uh, you can deliver pizzas if you have to. You can scale back on the quality of your food, and maybe for a month everybody's eating stovetop and top ramen. It's terrible quality nutrition, but it'll keep you alive until you get back on your feet. There's a lot you can do, but food on the table becomes a concern. right? If you go through a major disaster and your home and all your neighbors' homes are destroyed, and fortunately nobody is seriously injured, but... Uh, access becomes very difficult. Most of the food has been destroyed. There's no way to preserve the food, uh, and your neighbors don't have any either. You might go hungry for a bit longer than because you lost a job, and you might worry a little bit more about your belly, but food is still in the equation. 
if we have a major like state level disaster, global pandemic or something like that, and people are quarantined and can't leave their home, the inventory of the food in the house is going to become immediately important. And rationing might be something you have to look at doing, specifically if you haven't prepared it anyway. So from the, the giant global disaster right down to the mundane, I lost my job, food is a commonality. And there's other commonalities, and there's six primary commonalities of disaster. And each of them is affected in a little way different or to a less degree based on the severity of the disaster and the impact scale that the disaster represents. But they are food, water, shelter, energy, security, and health and sanitation. And these actually, the, the first five come from wilderness survival training. If I was going to teach you how to survive in the wilderness, that's what I'm going to teach you. Food, water, shelter, energy, and security. In the wilderness, health has a, a degree of concern, but there's only so much we can do if we're in a wilderness survival situation with that, but knowing certain medicinal plants and things like that. But it's generally not focused on to the same level because wilderness survival generally isn't about hanging out there for six months. It's about being as obnoxiously loud and visible as possible so help will come and take you away from your disaster. It's about getting help. It's about finding your way out so it's not a long-term living condition. And because you're in a situation with wilderness around you, taking care of human waste sanitation is pretty easy. Dig a hole, bury it. And you're, and you're not going to generally be in a wilderness survival situation with a thousand people with packed up sewers. So it takes a back seat. But in an urban, suburban, or major impact disaster, health and sanitation become a critical need. They're a lot less of a need if you get a job loss, though. All right? So it doesn't even apply to a job loss, really. What about your health insurance? So that's what I'm trying to drive home with you, that those six primary needs are actually, at least in some way, affected by every single disaster from the most mundane to the the most insane. And, well, what about water? So if I lose my job, the water's still going to come on when I turn the spigot on at the house. Well, yeah, true, unless you have a foreclosure and you're out on the streets. And you might be a little more concerned about the water. But, yeah, I get it. Your stored water is not going to be that big a deal in a job loss, but... I don't know if, if the, the, there's a boil water advisory for a week because your water company does something stupid. It might matter then. So even in the places where you can find the technicality where it doesn't directly apply, there's, there's something, something equally mundane where it will apply. So it makes sense that the first thing we need to do is to start to button down these six survival needs. And the better job we do of that, the better we're prepared for any disaster. And I, I try to compare it to taking a road trip. Let's say that I'm going to drive from Dallas, Texas to Los Angeles, California. All right? And I say, well, okay, great. And you say, how do I get there? Or you're going to drive, not me. You're going to get there. I say, well, you know, you're going to head west on I-20 and keep going that way. Eventually, you're going to get to New Mexico. So I don't want to go to New Mexico. Well, it's on the way to California, but I don't want to talk about New Mexico. Well, you might need to know how to get through New Mexico so you can get to Arizona. And you say to me, what are you talking about, Jack? I don't want to go to Arizona. I want to go to California. Well, until we have matter energy transport, or unless you really want to go out of your way and go up around to Los Angeles, up through, oh, I don't know, Wyoming or something dumb like that, you're probably going to go through Arizona and New Mexico on your way to Southern California.
And that means that we need to start out with how do we get out of Texas? In fact, how do we get out of Dallas? That's, that's actually in some ways with traffic and congestion and different routes more complicated than the, the major long haul route. We've got to get you out of, you know, what part of Dallas are you in North Dallas or South Dallas? Are you downtown or are you not actually in Dallas? You're in Richardson or Plano or one of the suburbs. You can change this to a city that you're more familiar with to make the, the point. But you see what I'm saying? If, if you're driving from, how many times have you taken a long road trip? And if you live in a major city, it, it seems like it almost takes you longer to get the hell out of your city than to get an, you know, another 60 to 100 miles down the highway once you're on the main interstate. Preparedness is the same way. All that little boring crap that nobody wants to talk about, because everybody wants to talk about guns and band-aids and beans uh, and the zombies, is the stuff that is, is the more complex to get going because it's about, it's about getting started, too. Have you ever had a job to do? Like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig this garden bed today. And, you know, once you get digging it and all, or you had a workout to do, i got to go to the gym and work out. Once you're in the middle of it, fine, you coast through it, man. It's not hard. Do it. But taking that first step and doing it, oh, ugh. can't I just have the muscles? Can't I just have a slimmer stomach? Can't I just be in California? Well, the answer is no, no, and no. And you can't get to fully prepared without becoming partially prepared first, unless you're a billionaire and you can just hire someone to do it for you. So I'm assuming most of the people listening to me aren't in that camp. You're not billionaires. If you are, please get in touch with me. I'd like to talk to you about a donation to the Jack Spearco Fund for Happy Jack. Um, I really would. I'd love to have you, you know, as a benefactor. But if, if you're not a billionaire and you can't just have this all taken care of, then you're going to have to do it in stages. And with the concept of risk assessment and auditing our readiness, I've come up with some questions to ask. And we can ask these in general overall, or we can take a permaculture approach. Oh, geez, talking about permaculture again. That's because it's really a universal approach to systems design. And what I'm trying to do here is design a system of resiliency and redundancy so that disasters don't make your life as miserable as they might if you didn't have it in place. I'm not promising they won't cause you any misery or any sadness or even any pain or even loss of life. If uh, if you're driving to work today and you get hit by a gravel truck, no matter what you've done, uh, you're you know your life is in God's hands at that point whether you're going to survive it or not. So there are some uh, you know eventualities where fate takes over, but I want a system here that in all but those instances gives you a better chance than had you not had it in place. So the first question that I would ask, and what I said as a permaculture approach, I mean you can ask yourself just in general if something went wrong. How would I? What would I? How long? Okay, But it's more interesting and starts to lead you to more ways to complete the dots, so to speak, connect the dots one to another and get the total picture if you take an individual disaster and then ask all of these questions about that disaster. And in some instances, the answer is it's not really that big a deal at all. And in the same disaster, maybe there's another question that goes, that's a big deal. And as you start to form the picture of what's most likely, And what's the biggest impact of the most likely things, you start to prioritize, what do I do first so you don't feel lost? You don't feel overwhelmed. You don't feel like this is too much and this is too hard. And can I just go back to eating Big Macs and be left alone? And as long as my air conditioner works and my pool works, I don't care. Um, no, because, you know, these things are real. So here are the questions. And, and I'll make you a promise right now. If you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like I just can't get my arms around preparedness, that I'm just kind of treading water and doing what I can when I can, and I, I'm not sure how to put this into an organized uh, procedure, if you'll go through these questions, 
uh, with me now and think about them and just get the mind going. And then I'll go through some disasters at the end of the show. And if you'll sit down and you'll do two things, you'll write down all the things that you really think could happen to you that are mundane and boring, like losing your job or the death of a spouse, and analyze them with these questions. And then take a regional assessment of things like hurricanes and tornadoes and do the same. And you work through that, you'll get 50% of the way from Dallas to Los Angeles very, very easily. The complex will become simple, and the rest of the journey will become a downhill snowball for you. But that's what you're going to have to, to do if you want this to work and not be complicated. Okay, the first one is how long, how, how would we and how long could we feed ourselves? How does this affect my food? I know it's one of the survival needs, but it's really an important question because it, it starts to really immediately put you in touch with certain things like, well, you know, if I lost my job, nobody would starve, but we'd have to change what we're eating. Maybe if we put some systems in place now, that wouldn't happen. Or... Gee, in some bigger disasters, that might become a real concern. That might become a huge concern, at least for a time. And how long do I think it would la what that problem would exist starts to lead me to how, how much you know, food preparedness I need to have. So how long could we feed ourselves and how would we feed ourselves during that time? Next one is how would this affect our shelter or our housing? You lose your job today. When you get home, your house will still be there. But how long will it still be there? How long before you're faced with a reality of, gee, I might have to sell the house or I might lose the house because I'm underwater? If you own your house outright, you're in a totally different situation than if you have a mortgage on your house. And if you have a mortgage on your house with equity in your home, you're in a different situation than if you have a mortgage on your house that you're upside down for by 20 to 30% like some people are right now. So even with the mundane, boring stuff, how would this affect my, my shelter? Because the shelter provides so many other needs. Odds are if you have food stored, it's probably in there, at least some of it. Hopefully it's not all in one place, because we'll get into some other things that affect your shelter in, in a bit. People that are like, well, I have all my food in my one place, in my house. Well, it's subject to damage, risk, and destruction. So spread it out. Uh, if you are in a good prepper's house, it's hard to tell that they have a big stockpile of food, because it's so dispersed and so distributed in little caches here and there that you don't really think it's there. That is a security issue when somebody comes into your house and puts carpet in. They're not like, oh, this is where all the food is. And it's also a security issue from the standpoint if the roof comes off your house, well, at least you still have some of the stuff. Okay? But how would this affect our shelter? So now the next thing is, well, how would it affect our shelter if we had a fire or a storm or a flood? What would still be usable? What would be salvageable? Would we be able to stay at all? Where would we go if we had to leave? How does this disaster or this potential event affect our housing? Including if you're at somebody's bedside because they're ill and you have certain things that need to be looked after with your housing. Okay, I'm going to talk about some things that are sad today. That's what disasters are. They're sad. I don't mean to bring anybody down. I try to make this show inspirational. But if you want to really know where you're at, you have to ask these questions and think this way. The next... What would we do for clean and safe water? Again, you lose your job, not that big a deal until you lose your house and you're on the streets. Then actually knowing how to harvest water might be really important even for something that you would think is just not that big a deal. Most of us think, well, we have systems of support that will help us if that happens, and most of us do, as long as it's not everybody at the same time. If we're in a global depression, I mean, this is the reality of where we could end up if we're not prepared for it. But... What about a boil water advisory? What if just you came home today and, and then there's an announcement on the local news, don't drink the water? 
Can't even boil it. Whatever the contaminant is, if you boil it, you just concentrate it. There are certain chemicals and minerals that if they get into the water supply, boiling it simply concentrates them. It's not safe. Okay? So just don't drink it at all. Or even just a boil water advisory. Okay? It's inconvenient. Wouldn't it be better if there was some water put away? I want you to think about another thing with your water. This is what I've seen happen. I've seen boil water advisories where they go, we've recently determined that the water may be unsafe to drink, and we boil, advise you to boil the water. Do you know how they know that? Usually it's not because some genius tested it and found something. It's usually because somebody's already sick. That's usually what tips them off. So how long have you been drinking contaminated water, and might you find that even if you start boiling water right away that the illness is already progressing inside of you, so using water filtration and having stored water that's been filtered might be a good idea. You see what I'm saying? And in a storm, what would you do for clean, safe water? If a storm had damaged things, the water supply was destroyed. For flood, a flood, there's too much water, but none of it's safe. Don't just say you'll boil it. What are you going to burn when everything's been flooded and everything's wet? Maybe you do have a way to boil it. Maybe you have stored fuel and, and a stored way to do that. But do you? These are all important questions. What will we do? For clean, safe water during this time. And understand the number one thing that kills people in major global, especially natural disasters, is contaminated water causing disease and diarrhea, causing dehydration. You can drink all the water you want if it's contaminated. You'll die of dehydration while you're drinking water. It's a very, very important one to ask. The next one. What health risks would this cause, if any? And again, there's some words. The, the analysis is simplistic. I lost my job. What health risks will it cause? As long as I can use COBRA for a while and get new health insurance, it might be some financial strain, but I'm not going to get dysentery because I got fired. All right? But if there's a major flood, there's a lot of health risks caused. If you are on maintenance medication or someone you love and care about is on maintenance medication and the system of support is shut down and you can't get it for 30 days and you don't have a 30-day supply, it's a big risk even if the basic health and sanitation is taken care of. So you have to take these questions and go very specific to your individual situation and the people that you care about and their situation. What health risks would a disaster like this cause, if any? How long would quote-unquote recovery take? You lose a job, how long does it take to find a new job? If you lose your spouse that you love, that you've been married to for 30 years, you still have children in their teens, recovery is never. But how long before you have enough recovery to function again? And for your children. People get through it all the time, and that's why we ignore the question, but the question's still there and it's real. What can you do to prepare for that? Nothing and a lot at the same time. And what I mean by that is, if you have a lot of systems of redundancy in place and a plan that you can just go to, you can, you can kind of fake your way through functioning. And by the time you come out the other side, at least you can work again and all, you're not financially ruined. The living mourn the dead, but they live on. And those who, who depart would not want your life destroyed just because they're gone. They'd be just as sad if you were gone, but they'd want you to move forward. They'd want you to make something of their legacy for them. And in a major disaster, we could be dealing with a lot of deaths, which could go right back to the last question. What health risk would that cause, if any? But how long would recovery take if your, if your house was just lost in a fire? 
We have some, some I call them associates, not friends, right now. Uh, my friend shortlist is pretty short. Uh, but some associates who had the gas feeding their oven and fireplace, something went wrong, and it literally exploded and blew away half of their house. Fortunately, nobody was killed. They are just associates, not friends, but I would be very sad if these people were even injured. And they're all alive. They're all okay. They're going to be living in a hotel for over six months. They basically have to totally demolish half the house to rebuild it. It did not affect their neighbors. They probably scared the crap out of them. There's a recovery period there, but at least support and help is available. If you have a Hurricane Sandy recovery, for some is a week and for some is years. You have to think about each individual disaster you're analyzing, how long would recovery take? Because that tells you what you need to be prepared to deal without and what you can do to mitigate that through preparedness. The next one, what specific regional issues exist? It's, this is not just, I live in a place where there's hurricanes. It's, I live in a place where there's hurricanes, but I'm on higher ground, so flooding is less risky. I'm on low ground, so flooding is more risky. I live right next to a giant lake that's just inland from an ocean where hurricanes happen, like Pontchartrain. It's basically the tank of a toilet behind New Orleans. That's why the flooding was so bad when the levees failed. This, it's an individual regional issue that we need to look at. If you're worried about economic collapse or economic failures, different regions are affected differently. Do you know what happened down here in Texas during the economic recession? Companies laid people off here and there. Most people found something to, to fill the gap with. Uh, it wasn't that big a deal. There's towns in the Midwest that were literally, I talk about being destroyed by tornadoes. There's, I've seen some documentaries where like the main streets have just dried up, folded in and blown away. And in the Northeast, the unemployment rates were a lot higher and the property value drop was bigger. The places that have the best upside for owning real estate have the biggest downside when, when, when an economic, uh, situation comes in. Even if it's not a collapse, even if it's just a recession. So, I mean, understand that as well, that there's regional issues beyond the, natu natu uh, the natural disaster. Do you have a lot of gang activity nearby? Those guys are a bigger risk during, you know, a martial law uh, scenario where the martial law hadn't actually been implemented yet. It should have been, but it's just not there yet. Do you live near a military base? How far are you from major highways? Different disasters, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad, depending on being close or far away. It changes. It's regional beyond what state and city you live in. It's regional right down to your house. How hard would it be to get out of there if you had to get out of there? What do you have to go through to get out of there? What's the best way to get out of there? If you had to stay, how long would it be before recovery could get into you where you're at? Being in that remote hideaway is really great until the disaster affects just you and your neighbor. And then you'd like it if somebody could get there to help you, and maybe they can't. So you got to really analyze that question. Next one, how would using existing how would existing health issues affect this disaster for you? Are you 500 pounds? I don't care what the disaster is, it's going to be harder on you if you're 500 pounds than if you're 200 pounds. Are you physically fit or at least as physically fit as is it's possible for you? You know, people say, "Well, you should run every day. What if I have no legs? What if I'm in a wheelchair?" Maybe I can't run every day because I don't have any legs or I'm in a wheelchair. I'm paralyzed from the waist down. That actually matters. 
Those of us that are in really good physical condition, we forget that sometimes. I'm in great shape. I was XSF, which you're probably lying. Most people that say that or that say it that way are usually full of crap about it. Those are the guys that are always in seventh group, right? Yeah, they were, they had, they had a feature. One of the guys in Black Hawk Down was really them. Those guys, right? They, they, they say they're SF. I say they're FOSF, full of shit forces, right? Those guys. Uh, I can do this. I can do that. I can climb a mountain. And even if when they're, some of them are in great shape. They really are. They're usually still full of it, but they're in great shape. Well, what about your, what about your wife, your children? Your elderly parents. The, the, these factors need to be considered if part of your plan is, well, I'm going to take mom and dad in with us. How will you get them there? Will they be able to handle the stress of the move? Do they have specific needs that require energy? Boring things like you snore and have sleep apnea, so you have a CPAP machine, to really important things like, you know, you're, you, you're at, at-home dialysis so you don't die because your kidneys don't work. And everything in between. Diabetes, right? There's a million things that you need to think about, and not just yourself and your kids and your wife or your husband, but anybody else that would be part of your group, that might become a group for a week, a month, a year, or a day. How will those existing health issues affect this disaster? And if the answer is significantly, your first question is, Is there any way I can mitigate them right now so they're not there? If you have type 2 diabetes, stop eating a bunch of sugar and donuts and lose some damn weight, and most likely they'll go away. Type 2, type 2 diabetes, unless there's some underlying physical problem that prevents you from fixing the physical issue, is almost 100% curable with diet. Type 1 diabetes, not going to happen. Pancreas doesn't work. It's a genetic thing. Which one is it? If it's the first one, then the only thing you can do is make sure you have enough insulin and all the other things that you need and the right type of food stored so you can get by as best you can. If it's type 2, we can mitigate that now. If you can't move well because you were in a serious accident, you have serious injuries to your joints and your back and your pelvis, Unless somebody, you know, actually ever can lay hands on you and heal you and don't wait for it because it ain't coming, right? Um, you got that problem. If you're, if you're slow to move and lethargic and you can't get around well and you have a lot of pain in your joints because you weigh 350 pounds, maybe you need to go on a diet, start exercising, and get yourself in shape. Because that's good for you whether there's a disaster or not. So we need to look at those, those, those underlying health issues and how they'll affect us during a disaster, including how will that affect us when I lose my job. Let me be blunt. If you weigh 350 pounds, it's harder to find a job than if you weigh a proper weight or even just a reasonable weight for you know your sex and your height and things like that. I know it shouldn't be. I know it's discrimination, but people that are hiring make judgment decisions. So even in a mundane disaster, it matters. If there's a fire, and the fire's from an electrical issue, and the electrical issue is because a tree fell on your house, and you need to carry your injured and unable to walk 16-year-old son down the stairs, and you weigh 400 pounds, you might kill both of you on the way down the stairs. Not beating up on anybody. Everybody here knows, well, most people here know, have been around a while, that I used to weigh 280 pounds. 283 pounds to be exact. And I'll tell you what, what made that dangerous for me, I could go hike five miles at 280 pounds. I'd convinced myself, ah, I know I don't look great, but it doesn't matter. I'm still, in, you know, 
I could work my ass off at 280 pounds. Now I'm closer to 200 pounds. I know how much better a shape I'm in now. I know how much more work I can do now that I didn't used to be able to do. And I know the health risks that I was incurring. And I'll just say it. I have paleo to thank for all of it. I really do. I won't go into that deep today. I'm just telling you, look into it. If you have this problem, it might be your solution. Next, would help be available and how long would it take to come? You know, in Hurricane Sandy, if you were on parts of Long Island, health was two weeks away. In other places, help was there almost as soon as, as, the, as the wind stopped roaring and the rain stopped flying and stuff stopped falling over. It all depends. But when we analyze all the other things, like our regional things and uh, our individual locations and, and things like that, we start to get a clearer picture that some of these disasters, help might be a long way out, and some help might be available pretty quickly. And if help's available pretty quickly, instead of sitting on our, on our, on our asses and saying, what, well, there's going to be help there, we might want to have a plan for how do we engage in that help as quickly as possible. Because let me give you another, you know, back to the mundane disaster, you've lost your job. You know what your biggest asset is when you've lost your job? Your reputation and your network. Doesn't sound like survivalism. Yeah, when your kids aren't eating or they're eating top ramen because you ain't had a job in two years and you're wanting the government to extend unemployment benefits because you can sit on your ass for another year while you wait for a job just as good as the one you lost that doesn't exist anymore, uh, maybe it will be. So let me, let me open your mind to that. So let's say you've lost your job. Well, Instead of calling the unemployment office, the first person I would call if I needed another job was all the people that I know in my industry that are in key decision-making roles or have access and connections to those things. That means you might want to stay in touch with those people and maintain that network uh, over the 20 years while you're at your one job, not just when you lost your job, ain't talked to the guy in eight years, and now you want his help. You might want to keep in touch and know where he is. Know his phone number and his email address if it changes. Mundane? Yes. Does it make sense? You bet it makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. So the help that's available could be something you proactively engage with. Trees have fallen on your home. You can't get them out of your driveway I have a steel chainsaw and I'm a lumberjack. I will cut them down. The tree fell through the roof and broke your freaking arm. You can't run your saw and you know better than to let your wife run the saw because she'll probably cut her leg off. Now you need somebody to get rid of the trees. Wouldn't it be nice to know two or three people that do that for a living, that are right in your area, that are in a book that you've documented? If the tree is stuck in the driveway, call these people. You're away from home on business. Your wife is home alone. She can't get the car out. Instead of telling her, go to Google and find someone, wouldn't it be better if it was already there? It's one example. If you start writing things down, documenting things, and putting together a preparedness book for your home, that you'll keep in your home and a copy in your car, a documentation package, it will grow and grow and grow. And you know what? If you have four copies, they should all be exactly the same. Whenever, whenever you update one, whatever new updated parts come out, print out four copies and amend all of them. So when you're on the other end of the line talking to your freaked out wife, freaked out husband, or freaked out child, everybody can see the same thing and be told, hey, here's your evacuation route. Here's where we're going to meet. Here's who you call. Here's how you get in touch with them. This is how you get money out of the bank. This is how you get money out of the bank so you can bail my ass out of jail because I used lethal force because somebody was going to kill me, and these idiot cops arrested me, and now I need bail. Here's the attorney that you call. 
How long will it take for help to get there? But can you proactively engage with that help? Can you be prepared to become first in line, not last in line, for the help that's available? It's not weak to accept help. It's weak to let your family suffer while you refuse to accept help that's there because of your pride or your stupidity. right? And then there's times where the help ain't coming. And you need to know that too and say, if it's going to be two weeks, how do we get through those two weeks? And if it's going to be two weeks, if you think it's going to be two weeks, it could be four. I've heard people in disasters all the time. There's one lady, they played her a million times on a local radio station in Dallas where there was a flood, and the flood hit a trailer park, and it was literally dr- moving the trailers off their foundation, washing them down. I mean, it was a, I mean, a lot of people died in this thing. And the study was like, no one came to get us. We had to get ourselves out. And I'm like, I feel for you, but of course you did. Who could possibly be there at that moment to help you? It was a flash flood. That's what happens. I'm not putting the person down, but maybe it would have been a good idea to go, hey, we live in a giant wash. It, it, it doesn't rain a lot here sometimes of the year, but all the rain comes at other times of the year. There could be a flood here. What will we do? If there was a flash flood warning, maybe we should know about it. Maybe we should have gotten out in advance. I'm not saying anybody could have been clairvoyant and figured this out, but maybe they could have. If they would have really analyzed their situation, those people may have known. Maybe they could have asked for help before the disaster ever happened, like, gee, we need this fixed. Because if they're in a trailer park, there's probably a landowner. That landowner should have done that. But it's not up to the landowner to do your risk assessment. It's up to you to do your risk assessment. And maybe the decision was, you know what, you won't fix it. I'm going to find a new trailer park. Maybe the decision was, I'm going to work really hard to get out of the trailer park and get a little bit better accommodations. I'm not putting you down if you live in one, though. There's some really nice ones out there. But they come with certain risks if you live in a place where there's tornadoes and hurricanes and floods that are significantly more risk than if you live in a site-built home, especially one that's built out of bricks or earth shelter. The, the house itself has a lot of, to do with that. Next question, what security risks might pop up beyond the normal? I mean, there's always a chance somebody's going to rob you, murder you, mug you, rape you, break into your house, stab you in the back, start a fight with you, steal your car, steal your stuff, bust the windows out of your car to take your stereo or your iPod. I mean... That, that exists all the time, but in a disaster, those risks go up, don't they? You lose your job. What security risks exist beyond the normal? Probably not that many. Except, does it, does it dull your senses and your situational awareness because you were mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually unprepared to deal with the situation, so now you're kind of mopey and not really thinking about what's going on and go out and drown your sorrows and one too many adult beverages and let yourself end up in the wrong place? See, no matter where you go to, you can always come back to these questions. And the person that's emotionally and spiritually prepared Hey, if I lose my job, it's not that big a deal. I was looking for one when I found this one. I've maintained my network. I've kept my ear to the the grindstone. Hey, I've been trying to work and build myself a little side income anyway. I have a little bit of that. There is unemployment. I'm going to be all right. I'm going to go out and have a beer instead of 10 beers, and I'm going to celebrate this new opportunity in my life. That person's not likely to let their situational awareness down and be more likely to become a victim. Or... There's more than one way to become a victim. There's more than one security concern. People make stupid financial decisions when they're desperate. People take jobs they should never take when they're desperate. People let people talk them into things they should never let themselves be talked into when they're desperate, including sometimes criminal activity. 
Security risk isn't always you being a victim. It's maybe you being talked into becoming a perpetrator. Because you've let your situation be so weak that now you're afraid that you won't be able to keep the roof over the head and food on the table. These are realities. It's a new way to look at the old questions. If there is a major storm, and after the storm's over, there's a lot of ability to move around, but first responders are really occupied with other things, criminal elements tend to use those opportunities to loot, to steal, to rape, to murder, to do all the things that they do every day, but do it in greater numbers and be more emboldened by the opportunity. Are you prepared to defend yourself? Physically? Mentally? Emotionally? Legally? Do you know when you can and cannot use force? Do you have multiple options for how you would use force? Do you have a system in place? Hey, if this happens, we're going to security level two, not one. There's additional things we're going to do. If this goes on, if X happens, then you know we, we have this level of security. But if, 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 if something else happens, we go to a system where nobody's ever outside by themselves until it's over. We go to a system where nobody's, nobody's ever unarmed, where there's always a means of communication, where you check in and check out if you're going anywhere. It doesn't have to be the end of the world to move to those layers of security. Our car broke down. Well, did it break down in some little Mayberry-style town in, in, in Minnesota? I know that's not where Mayberry was, but you get my point. Kind of a really nice place where people don't even lock the doors. People leave keys in their car because just there is no criminal activity. Dumb, 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 if you're a person that does that. Ben Falk. <laughs> don't leave your keys in your vehicle. I don't care that there's no crime rate where you live. But you did that kind of place. I mean, what's your security risk there? Honest to God, the people that live there might consider themselves themselves more at risk to you than you would to them. But what if you're driving through Chicago and you kind of get lost and take a wrong turn and then you break down in the south side? And you're there with your two kids and your pretty blonde wife. Sticking out like a sore thumb. Not everybody there is evil. Not everybody there wants to hurt you. There's probably some really decent people there that might even want to help you. But the potential for a security risk there is much higher. And if you say, that's racist or that's just stereotypical or whatever, really? Go there. Go there at 1.30 in the morning. Park your car with your family and hang out there for a while. Tell me how you feel. So the security risks that pop up beyond the normal are very situational to even the same problem. So you need to analyze that based on your region, based on your risk tolerance, based on your preparedness level, based on your fitness, based on everything else. How about this one? How would you care for your pets? You know, you might want to store up some extra dog food, but what if that dog has to leave? Do you have a, something to put them in? Some way that you can transport them? Do you have an ability to get out on your own? Because if, if, if disaster evacuation, disaster evacuation team comes to get you, because you didn't evacuate when you were told to, or because you, you can't get out because you don't have a way out, they'll usually tell you you're not bringing your pets. There were people that stayed for Hurricane Katrina and rode out the storm. Some of them died. And it wasn't all they were stupid or they were dumb or whatever the TV told you. Some of them looked at their, their, their dog or cat or dogs and cats that had been their friend for five or ten more years or more years and said, I'm not leaving them behind. And they said, well, you can't take them. Said, well, I'm staying. What would you do? Would you be prepared so you never even had to make the decision? What would you do with your pets? You lose your job? Do you have pets that are relatively expensive to maintain? 
If you want to maintain them after that, you have a plan in place to do so, from the mundane to the insane. What would be the impact on our children, mentally and physically? I think a lot of people say, well, they'll just do what they need to do when they have to do it. Try that with a trembling, crying, screaming, freaking out nine-year-old girl. Try that with an infant that doesn't even have a clue what's going on, but just knows things aren't right and is going through colic at the same time that you're trying to keep them quiet because there's a security risk. What is the impact going to be on our children mentally and physically? Not so that we can prevent it, because you can't. Trust me, if there's a tornado that rips the roof off of your house, your child will be mentally affected by it. You might have a hard time going to sleep for a long time. But you can at least be aware that it's going to happen so that you can think about how do I do the best I can for them in this situation. And how do you think you would respond mentally? How do you think you emotionally would deal with the situation? Let's face it. Let, let me put a little bit in your gut right now. You're driving down the road, and you hear, ah, 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 the alert tone, and it says, this is not a test. This is not a drill. This is a serious announcement. The Center for Disease Control has announced a serious pandemic affecting us right now and has therefore declared that all citizens of the following cities are to immediately return to their homes for quarantine and stay put. And they list your city as one of them. Stay tuned for further notice. That's the end. I don't want to know how well prepared you are for it. How much food's in your house? How well you'll think you'll ride it out? I want you to think about your five-year-old kid possibly contracting that disease while you're quarantined and how it would emotionally and mentally affect you. I want you to think about your neighbors being sick and asking for entry into your home and having to tell them no. You would help them otherwise, but you can tell they're ill. You're just going to make everybody in here sick. I got to tell you no. I'm sorry. Get off our property. We'll use force to repel you if we have to. We want to help you. We get you're sick. How would that affect you? You smell smoke in the middle of the night. You manage to get your family outside. You stand and watch the house that was your dream home burned to the ground. How do you deal with it? person that you love comes home and tells you the doctor says it's terminal. These are not things we want to think about. And we shouldn't think about them all the time because life is too short to live in fear and to live in sorrow and to live in misery. But we need to think about them from time to time because it happens every day. And thinking about how I would deal with it will help you deal with it better, maybe not well, but better than if you don't. Believing it can never happen when it happens then is devastating, beyond devastating. When you know it can happen, your mind immediately begins to say to yourself, what do I do next? How do I handle this? What do we, if the doctor says it's terminal, maybe it's not. What do you have? I have cancer. Well, maybe we're going to try some alternative treatments. Maybe it is terminal. Then maybe we need to figure out how that we make this as, as best we can during this period of time. Because maybe if it's terminal, maybe radical invasive treatment is not the answer. Maybe acceptance is. 
Or maybe there's a chance, and we need to make sure that we're physically fit so we can get through that chance, and maybe we can make it out the other side and beat the odds. But we have to be mentally and spiritually prepared for that. And I'm not coming about that spiritual thing religiously, folks. I don't darken the door of a church very often, and if I do, it's for somebody else's event. I'm not telling you to get saved. I'm not telling you to find God. I'm telling you to find what works for you spiritually and make sure it's part of your mental preparedness. If that is a church, if that is a community, if that's a temple, I don't care what it is, but what it is for you, it's very important that it's linked to the mental challenges so that together the spiritual and emotional side of you can work together to channel yourself through whatever comes your way. Because I'm going to tell you, unless we're the ones that check out early and we, we have some tragedy take us out early, we're all going to deal with something like one of these things in our lives. Multiple, most of us will deal with it multiple times. And does it destroy you or does it make you stronger? Is a lot to do with how prepared you are to endure it. There's a saying that uh, Valerie Asinoff, the guy that I trained in Sistema with from the KGB, used to say, and it was, those who sweat the most in peacetime bleed the least in war. And uh, he had a Russian way to say it. It was really cool. But even though I'm, my family's from Ukraine, I don't speak Russian at all, so I won't try it. But that is a true, true statement, and it applies here as well. What physical injuries might be incurred during the onset? Well, I'm prepared to do this, and I'm prepared to do that. What if a tree falls on you? You're not dead. You're just really hurt bad. There's a fire. You think about all the things you need to do to put your house back together. But what if you're in a burn center for three months? And somebody else has to do what you normally would do as the leader in the family. There's no plan in place for them. You have a business of your own. It's very successful. You'll never fire yourself. But you become injured by just a random injury. And you're expecting your spouse to just keep it afloat for those three months while you go through physical therapy. Is there a blueprint for that to be done if you're a one-man show? See, preparedness is so much more broad. And you know what? I know it's almost like, this is supposed to make me feel better. It's not making me feel better. He's making this worse. I'm scared. No, see, the thing is, all of these things can be addressed. And we address them all the same way, a little at a time. This is how we get in touch with it, though. So we just start to put the systems in place over time. Knowing, oh, wait a minute, if I was really hurt and couldn't really run my business, my wife wouldn't be able to do it, that just means I need to make a business operations manual like any big company would have, and I've never done because nobody ever made me do it, and I'm the only one here, and I know how the operations work. So you can do that. You can start working on that just a little bit every day, six months down the road. Hopefully, you know, nothing happens by then. You've gone over it with her. Hand it to her and say, look, this is not how to run the business full time. This is how you keep the business running until we can either find someone to run it or until I'm able to do it again. This is how we just keep it above water. That's not an option in my business. Maybe you need a different plan then. Maybe buying that disability insurance that seems so expensive isn't as bad an idea as you thought it was because that's who you are. And maybe in another situation you're like, you know what? This business would run itself. I got health insurance for the health issues. I don't need that disability insurance. I have a couple employees. They're well-trained enough to run this business as long as my mind works. You know, I mean, there's there's different scenarios here. But, I mean, that's just the case. That any time there's actually, especially a natural disaster, there's a potential for injury. There's a fire. Due to inhalation, you have serious lung incapacitation from the fire. 
How do you deal with the aftermath of the fire while you're dealing with that? How do you prevent that from happening in the first place? What evacuation plans do you have so if there is a fire you can get out of your house to mitigate those? See, the problems lead to solutions. That's why I brought permaculture up at one point along the way. How do you get out if you're forced to leave? Which, which route would you take? What vehicle would you take? What vehicles would you take? Who would drive? What if one of you can't drive? Do you have a, a household where one side doesn't know how to drive a stick shift, but one of the vehicles are sticks? Teach the other one to drive the stick shift. I don't care if they like it. I don't care if they do a good job at it. Can they just get it done in an emergency? You should never have a vehicle or a gun that not everybody, in, that, that, that anybody in the home that's old enough to do so doesn't know how to operate. Right? And I never have a machine. Can you do things like put labels on your battery backup systems, labels on your generators that say push this? So that when you're not thinking clearly, like Steve Harris teaches, you have a flashlight in your teeth, you can still do it. Or when you're at, you're away from home, your wife can do it. Cause you just say, see where the blue tape is? It says push that button. Push that button. See the cord that says plug in here, plug that cord. See A and B, A goes to B. So having those plans in place is important, but how do we get off if we have to leave? If they say you are now required to evacuate, it's a mandatory evacuation. This is a, a serious life-threatening situation, and first responders will not be able to help you if you don't leave. And you look at that and you believe it and you go, we're not stupid, we're getting out of here. You know, if you have the right plan, you might have left yesterday before they told you that. So you're not sitting in a traffic waiting eight hours to get out of a place that's going to be hitting six. Pay attention and have that plan to evacuate. And where would you go? That's important, too. Where would you go if you were forced to leave? Do you have more than one place you would go? Because the place you plan to go may not be available or may be in a worse situation than where you are. Two is one, one is none. Three is for me. <laughs> I don't remember what we came up, but I think we got up to seven was heaven. Right? I don't know that you need seven bug out locations. But having two or three places, not just one that you might go, and sometimes it's a hotel room. Being able to book that room before, you know, 5,000 other people figure out that's a good plan. Sometimes it's a true fallback location. But start with the mundane long before you get to the insane. And, you know, how would you get along if you were forced to say? That's the other thing to think about. Not a bug out, but they say, you ain't leaving. Roads are blocked. National Guard's out there. You ain't going nowhere. And even if you think, they shouldn't do that, I'll go where I want. When you really look at it, you go, you know what? <laughs> I'm not stupid. In this situation, staying put is the best play. I'm staying put. Well, how well would that work for a week? With the power out and the water not running. Two, three, four, two months. I mean, some of these situations that are not that improbable, a real pandemic, a 60-day pretty much quarantine lockdown, it's not out of the, of the playbook at all. That's something, I'll tell you what, my instinct is that's something that will happen in human history, in modern human history. You and I might be laid to rest by then, but sooner or later that one's going to happen. There's too many diseases, there's too many mutations, there's too much ability to travel and move around, uh, there's too much potential for just the right mutation to happen to create that lethal strain with high contagion rate that it, that, that it, that it won't happen. It's, to me, that's like the economic eventual and economic failure of the current system. That's a mathematical certainty. When you look at all the numbers, it's just a matter of time. 
and you might have to stay put for a long time in that one. And that all go where I want attitude that some lone wolf survivalists have. The disease doesn't care that you're a badass. It'll just kill you anyway. There's been certain strains of the flu. The person in the best physical condition died the worst, right? Died the most likely to die. There's certain flus that have basically triggered an, a, an excessive immune response where the immune system literally turns on the person. And the person with a weak immune system has a weak immune system attacking them. And the person with a really strong, tough immune system has a really strong, tough immune system attacking them. The Spanish flu epidemic, 1918-1919, killed more healthy people than infirm people. It's the exception, not the rule, but a pandemic's the exception, not the rule, right? So how would we get along if we're forced to stay? I'm going to go through a few disasters quickly because I've talked about them along the way. But these are just some disasters that you can put through these questions. And if you didn't take notes today or whatever, go to the show notes. Uh, this is going to be episode again, 1127. All the questions are listed there for you in bullet points so you can, you can make these assessments. You lose your job. Ask all those questions about the loss of a job. Local storms of varying degrees. Just simply shut down transportation. Lines are down. You're, you got powers off, but you're okay. Your house is fine. You didn't flood. You can't go anywhere for a couple weeks. Two, your house has been completely flooded or destroyed in some way. Roof's gone. It's collapsed. Structure, even though it's there, isn't safe. And anything in between, ask those questions. House fire. Little one. Little one that takes out a little bit of the house and, and, and you know, you got some smoke damage and all, but basically you're going to be able to rebuild and maybe you can at least even maybe uh, put up some, some plastic and stuff to keep that side of the house to stink out. And while that's being fixed, you can still use the house to a degree. Um, or you're, you're camping in an RV in your backyard while it's being repaired to the house is gone. Boarding up what's left of it, and you're living in a hotel for three to four months. What? I mean, ask those questions about all of that. Death of a family member or serious illness of the same. Your wife, your husband, child has cancer. Serious cancer that they have a 50% chance of dying from and a 50% chance of recovering from. A serious cancer that is going to kill them. There's nothing you, the doctor, or anyone other than God can do. And God's plan does not involve them being miraculously cured. A heart attack, an injury, life-altering injury, paralysis, coma. Being told you're going to die versus just, ma'am, I'm sorry, I'm with the local police department, and your husband, your son, your daughter. All those questions can examine that. I know you don't want to think about it. But, you know, you might have a new appreciation for something as mundane as life insurance, if you will. Because let me tell you something. Typical financial liar advice about your children is insure them for enough money to bury them. They don't provide income. How well will you do your job a week after your child has passed away? How much help might you need if that happens to you? How much counseling might you need? Might you need 60 days just off of work? And even if your, your company's willing to do it, they may not be willing to pay you. They might need a temp to hold down the fort while you're gone going through some type of deep recovery process. How will you pay the bills for that period of time? We should ensure the lives of our children for a lot because the lives of our children are valuable. 
We don't measure everything of value in dollars, friends. And it's inexpensive to do. And you might need it. Their brother or sister might need really a lot of help. Even if you manage to just gut your way through it, you just do it. You, I gotta, man, I gotta live for these other two kids. I gotta do this. I, I don't need, maybe I'll talk to a couple people, my minister or something, but I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna make it work. What about your spouse? What about your other kids? Might it be a good thing that there is some level of financial buffer that if your kids need eight weeks or two months or three months or four months of counseling to get through the law, do you just do it? If they need you more than they did before, you can just take a, a day a week off and just spend time with them and let them know that life is going to go on because you're not worried about just keeping the roof over the head because you've planned. Economic recession, more severe than 2008, but not a collapse. You know, how would this affect your, your retirement? When I hear somebody, I lost half my retirement, I was going to retire early, I couldn't. Why were you that exposed? Would you lose your job? If you kept your job in 2008, if it was, if it was any worse, would you have lost your job? How secure is your job really? Just because you work for the government doesn't mean it's secure. In the next collapse, the next recession anyway, not even collapse, government jobs may be the first ones to go. Because governments, even the most reckless governments, are beginning to get in touch with what they've done to themselves. They're running out of money. And they're going to face the reality. Economic collapse. Economic shift. The big one. The admission by our overlords that our financial system has failed. That the United States cannot pay its bills anymore. That we can no longer service or overturn our debt. And that the monetary system has to be changed. And the dollar has to be rebased. Ask those questions about that one. And again, I think it's a mathematical certainty. I just don't know when. That flu or other pandemic we were talking about. Ask all those questions in relation to that. Including how we get out, because quarantine may not be the best answer early on. It may be best to go to a remote location early on if you have the option. You have to have a lot of other ducks in a row to be able to pull up your life like that. When you're not sure if it's really as bad as you think it is, but your gut tells you it is. Nuclear power accidents. Ah, nuclear is safe. Yeah, ask the people in Fukushima. Could have been worse. Almost was. Isn't fixed yet. It's not the disaster they told you about. You notice the people that were on the radio, specifically one guy that's like, it's a giant cloud of uh, radioactive death headed for you right now. Buy your potassium iodide or you're going to die. That guy's not like really even talking about it much anymore. Occasionally they throw a bone about it. Like, it's still there. It'll get you. But, but like nobody's actually like, I was telling you the truth when I told you not to freak out. But if you live in Japan, especially near Fukushima, then maybe it's a bigger deal. Uh, why don't you look up nuclear power plants in, and then the, after in, put your state. And then if you live, you know, in a place where not a lot of them are, like check all the states that surround you. Then check the way the wind normally blows. Just think any of those, those plants, and, and those plants, a lot of them are very old, using very old technology, have very much the same issues that Fukushima did. Many of them are not sitting on the ocean ready for a tidal wave, but most of them are near very large bodies of water and subject to flooding. 
Because you need the water to cool the reactor. So ask all those questions in relation to that. And you don't have to be where the disaster is to be affected by the disaster. If it's a bad enough disaster, Chernobyl, Fukushima times two, it can affect you even if you're not anywhere near it and not just from fallout, but from the global repercussions of something like that. And then go ahead. As you button your life together, ask the serious question. Any true global disaster with long-term total system failure, for lack of a better term, the zombie apocalypse. That's not a terrible thing to think about. It's a terrible event, but I mean, question-wise. Because it, it will help you fill in the blanks for all the other disasters that are more likely. Just don't start there. That's why I put it at the end. If you'll do this type of an analysis, you'll come to a couple conclusions. Number one, there's a reason for preparedness. We need to do it. It's, it's important. Uh, you'll also come to a, a realization that there's there's stuff that can be done. It's not it's not impossible to be prepared. I can I can get all of this done in time. You'll also determine there's a lot of stuff that's not that hard that's just kind of tedious that I need to go ahead and get done right away because it's the easy stuff to do and the most likely. And the biggest thing is you'll get on the path. And if you're already on the path, you'll start walking the path a little straighter and falling off a, a little less often. I know some of the things I talked about today are kind of horrific. They're not the things you really want to think about or talk about or, or really open your mind to, especially when you start talking about serious injuries and death to people you love. But I'm going to give you a statistic here at the end. In, uh, in 2012, there were about 1.6 million new cases of cancer and over half a million deaths. That's just cancer. It's just cancer. It's not automobile accidents. It's not rapes, murders, robberies, murders. Uh, I said murders twice, but maybe it's worth saying twice. Just cancer. Half a million. In the United States, some of the most advanced medical treatment available. Some of it's really good. Some of it's really not. But the stuff that's good is really good. We're really better than, than we, we give ourselves credit for when it comes to being able to, to, to address situations. Cause the, I mean, the good side of that is 1.6 million, 500,000 deaths. That's 1.1 million survivors. But it's real that these things can happen. And if we accept that, then we can plan and then we can do our best to overcome them. And then we can accept something. You can't be completely ready for any of this stuff. Nobody's ever prepared to lose a child. But children die every day. Well, you can be prepared to continue living your life. Because you're worth doing it for, and other people that you care about are worth doing it for. They really are. That's what this show is really all about, folks, is getting people prepared in every way conceivable to deal with these situations. Because they do occur. They do happen. And we need to be ready for them. So I invite you to do this assessment and develop a plan based on it because you and your family are worth it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Revolution is you. 